This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 276 for Monday, October 15th, 2012. XMM Newton. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Abbotsville. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? Good. I, w- I just went on a road trip, and I wanted to share uh, something with people, which is if you've never done this, you should absolutely do this. Now, I live on Vancouver Island, so we often go to... Uh, to the United States, down to Seattle. And when I was in Seattle, we just like on a whim went to the Boeing factory. And it is a phenomenal place. It is amazing. It's just, you know, the, it's the largest building in the world by volume. They kept telling us this. Um, but you get to see these planes being being built. And it felt a bit like I was watching spacecraft get built. You can see 747s getting built and the way they, they crane them around and stuff. So if you're ever in the Seattle area, you know, and if you live in the Seattle area and you haven't been to the Boeing factory, shame on you. Go check it out. It's awesome. There you go. That's news you can use. But you've been you've actually seen rockets launch and rockets constructed. Yeah. So I've, I've got to go tour around Johnson Space Flight Center where they were working on constructing space planes at the time. I've, I've been down to Kennedy and seen Grail launch and seen the shuttle launch. But uh, no, I've never been inside one of the Boeing factories, and and so that that sounds mighty awesome. So. Yeah, it's super cool. So let's uh, well let's get cracking then. This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Eighth Light Inc. Eighth Light is an agile software development company. They craft beautiful applications that are durable and reliable. Eighth Light provides disciplined software leadership on demand and shares its expertise to make your project better. For more information, visit them online at www.8thlight.com. Just remember, that's www.thedigit8thlight.com. Drop them a note. Eighth Light. Software is their craft. So on the plus side, the Earth's atmosphere keeps us alive. And on the downside, though, it blocks X-ray radiation from reaching the surface. Okay, so maybe that's still in the uh, plus category. Uh, Still, in order to understand the universe at the higher energy levels, you need to launch a space telescope like the European Space Agency's XMM-Newton telescope. So let's learn about the telescope, named for the famous scientist. Let's learn about the telescope. Uh, now, now, when what, sort of what's the history of the telescope? When did they, the uh, the ESA decide they were going to build themselves a uh, an X ray telescope? Well, the the plans for this one started in the early '80s. It got built in the late '90s. Uh, started doing science in 2000. And this is the mission that just refuses to die. So it's been going since 2000, which admittedly means it is younger than the Hubble Space Telescope and several others. But it's it's had its mission extended a number of different times because it's still doing very good science. It's, it's still a workhorse. And one of my favorite random mission statistics is, is the satellite, because it observes in the X-ray, it, it has to get very distant from the Earth. It, it has to get out far enough that it's beyond the Earth's radiation belts. 
And so it, it actually has a 48-hour orbit that brings it down fairly close to the Earth, then whips it out into this nice slow orbit when it's furthest from the Earth. And so it, it's had, uh, as of the day that we're recording this, 2,357 revolutions around the Earth, and it's had 3,190 refereed papers that used its data. So it's, it's actually producing papers at a rate that on average is greater than its orbital velocity. Well, not velocity, but orbital rate. Yeah, and it's funny because as the, you know, as the publisher of Universe Today since 1999, yeah. You know, one of the first stories that I worked on was the launch of the XMM Newton and and have been sort of reporting stories from that just nonstop for 12 years now. Yeah. You know, it's a funny thing. I mean, it's just it's going, it's going, it's going and it's doing, you know, it's gathering tons of X-ray radiation. And many of the pictures that people have seen out there were taken by the spacecraft. They don't realize, you know, it's it and Chandra are really doing the heavy lifting out there. And, and it, it also has one of the illustrators that we end up seeing their work over and over and over. So if you've ever seen any of these um, gamma ray burst animations where you see the beautiful many reds and creams disc with the jets jetting out. Yeah, black holes. and Yeah. Yeah, a lot of these are, are pieces of art that were originally commissioned to go with the FM XM. M. Newton, not to be confused with the radio station, XMM Newton um, spacecraft. So there, there's lots of little ways that this hard-to-pronounce spacecraft has has snuck into our understanding of astronomy. Now, now let's do, go back to a bit for a second here. You know, why do we need to have a space telescope for X-ray radiation, and why is that important? Well, so so the the why do we need it uh, boils down strictly to uh, our our atmosphere is kind enough to block high energy radiation from reaching the surface of the Earth, so we don't get X rays, we don't get gamma rays. Uh, Superman's X ray vision is always perplexing because in order for X ray vision to actually work, you'd need the X rays to be coming through the person, but there's no source of X rays. So, yeah, unless he's doing backscattered X ray like they do at the airports superman's x-ray vision just doesn't it, it's missing a few scientific details there he would be emitting lethal doses of of x-ray radiation in all directions and then looking for the backscatter <laughs> coming back right yes it's, yeah it's yeah so so superman uh, it's it's one of those marvel fails but uh so so without the uh, x-ray and before other you get high... in trouble i need before you get in trouble it's dc was it dc yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, God, yeah. sorry don't, so don't send an email please but anyway, continue sorry i goofed um, <laughs> um but uh, right so right so but what do we use this x-ray radiation for like what will astronomers want to use it for well it's so different colors map to different temperatures of of processes going on throughout the universe really, really hot processes, very, very high energy processes end up producing high energy light, high energy photons that uh, we end up detecting in the X-ray. So when we see the shock waves of exploding stars compressing uh, surrounding gas, those shocks can emit X-rays. When we look into the hearts of galaxy clusters where gravity is is compressing all of the inner cluster material, we see X-rays getting emitted. Uh, so 
there's a whole variety of different processes ranging from explosions to extremely dense environments that all end up releasing x-rays. And we can't understand those processes if we can't see those processes. So by launching these space telescopes, we're, we're able to tap into part of the data that we can't see from the surface of the Earth and build a, well, a more spectrally varied picture of our universe. Right. Okay. And so it's sort of like certain kinds of processes in the universe are going to give off this X-ray radiation. And that can then tell you that certain things are happening, like merging galaxy clusters. And yeah. A a good way to think of this is uh, here on Earth, imagine if suddenly you couldn't see anything that was yellow, orange, or red. Just suddenly all of that information is gone. There's lots of things that suddenly would be harder to understand. Well, there's lots of colors Street in an astronomy. Yeah. So yeah. there's there's lots of colors in astronomy that we can't generally see. Certain bands in the infrared that don't make it through our atmosphere, certain bands in in the radio that there's just too much molecular stuff in the atmosphere. But then all the high energy stuff gets blocked and and so it's we're trying to build a data-based understanding of our universe, so we need all the data, and that includes all the X-rays. And so, okay, so let's talk about the uh, the observatory itself again. So, I mean, you mentioned it was launched in 1999. How was it launched? I, it, it was a regular everyday rocket, one of the Ariane 5 rockets, so nothing exciting about how it was launched. No space shuttle missions were involved. This is a European mission. Right, but they probably launched it from their... Uh their South American facility, right? They did. They launched it from French Guinea. Yeah. And and if you've never watched any of the videos or seen a launch down there, one of the awesome things about the videos, and I'm guessing if you're there in person, you see this too, is there are giant birds on this <laughs> island. Right. And so as you're watching the launch, it looks occasionally like a pterodactyl has just flown through the image. You see that a bit in Florida too, though. You know, great big birds flying past, but yeah. Yeah, I, I missed them there, but uh, so this is this is a great facility, and one of the reasons that it's such a great facility is it's close to the equator, so you get the extra Oomph. velocity from the Earth's orbital rotation. It was launched into an extremely elliptical orbit, uh, as I said earlier. It actually gets to about a third the distance to the moon at its furthest away. Uh, nearest, it's still many times further away than this, the uh, International Space Station. It's Its close point is still 7,000 miles up. Now you mentioned, sorry, that it's that it's trying to avoid the radiation belts. Is that right? Or it's well, it's trying to get out of them for the majority of its orbit. So it spends about eight hours of its forty-eight hour orbit inside the radiation belts, which gets it closer and it's easier to transmit data back down to the Earth. That that's not the primary reason to do this. But the the advantage of having this highly elliptical orbit is is one of the things that Kepler figured out is when you're close to your your thing that you're orbiting, the sun, the planet, whatever it is that you're orbiting, you move much faster than when you're further away. This is the equal area and equal time part of the planetary laws. And with this highly elliptical orbit, it spends eight hours whipping past the Earth, going through the Earth's shadow, but then it lingers for long periods of time much further away, and it can get 10, 12 straight hours on one source without any difficulty. Now compare that to to other objects, other spacecraft that are orbiting every hour and a half or so around the planet. 
they're constantly getting a changing view. Um, so with this longer period orbit, you can get longer observations. X-rays are a bear to detect. Objects that are giving them off aren't giving off a lot of them most of the time. So you're able to get long, long period exposures and count each of those little individual photons that are coming into the telescopes. And so the other sort of main telescope for this is the Chandra X-ray Observatory. So so how do they compare and contrast as two observatories? I mean... Well, so so XMM-Newton, it, it has three different major instruments, and it was designed originally to do spectroscopy, to, to measure what are the wavelengths of the different photons that are coming in um, and hitting it. So it's, it's trying to figure out what, what sorts of oxygen and iron heavily ionized systems are out there, and it's specially designed. In, in fact, uh, its its original name tied into to its spectral capabilities. It, it's designed to go out and count the photons coming in at the specific wavelengths, allowing it to. It's hard to explain if you're not a spectroscopist why this is this is cool. So the the way to think about it is sorry I'm, I just hit this wall of I don't know how to make uh, counting iron ionized photons cool. Um, it, well, I mean cooler than it already is. I mean it's inherently right. a very cool thing. But <laughs> but I mean you know specifically as it relates to this telescope. No, I understand. Yeah, so so there there's basically uh, gas out there that you can measure its composition, you can measure its temperature, you can measure all sorts of cool things just by knowing the iron is doing this, the oxygen is doing this, the background continuum is this, and and you get this through spectroscopy. We've done episodes on spectroscopy before. There's no easier way to make people's eyes glaze over than to show them spectra. Light stuff on fire, you can figure out what it's made of exactly and the universe conveniently sets itself well not on fire but ionizes itself which which causes the same side effects it does various things to itself yeah yeah exactly and then that tells you what it's made of as it's destroying itself uh you can you can tell what it's made of so that's perfect yeah so so and one of the other side side things that that xmm newton has that makes it novel in some ways for the time that it was built this has been repeated since then uh, is it actually had an optical imager on board as well so it was possible for it to monitor in optical and ultraviolet wavelengths where it was pointed and right. to start to to match the x-ray sky and the optical sky one one of the things that we really struggle with in astronomy is how do we align all these different wavelength maps uh it, day-to-day life we look for a signpost and we say this signpost is the corner of of main street and st louis street i live near that corner but when you look out at the cosmos you don't have signposts that necessarily give off light across the entire electromagnetic spectrum so you can say well here's a signpost i can see in the optical here's a signpost i can see in in the x-ray are those the same signpost? And and so being able to take simultaneous observations, it helps. And and over time, we're we're working to try and find more and more signposts that we can use to unify our maps. And there's a lot of really great images that come out both from, um, like from NASA and also from the European Space Agency, where they do these combined photographs where they use like blue for X-ray, red for infrared. 
some other color, you know, for visible, and then they merge them together so you can see, you know, these are the parts that are the the dust that's, you know, the, the warm dust or the cool dust, and then these are the parts that are giving off x-ray radiation. It's by seeing all those things all at the same time that you can really get a sense of what's going on in the picture. So I know for scientists, they want to do that all the time. They want to, they want to look at the same thing in as many different wavelengths at the same time because each of those wavelengths is telling a story, and by putting them all together, you get a, the full story. Yeah, and and some of the pictures, uh, Centaurus A is is one of the ones that I think gets abused in multiple wavelengths the most often. Andromeda yeah. is another one, but Centaurus A, it's it's a system that's gone through recent interaction. So when you look at it in the visible, you see this really mutant dust lane cutting through a big elliptical core. And as you look across multiple wavelengths of it, you start to see, wow, this thing in in Herschel's images, you see this beautiful disk bent through the system. So, so there you're starting um, to pick up the far infrared. As as you look at it in in the X-rays, you see this core is giving off a jet, and there's bubbles of of shock waves interacting with the materials. And so you're getting different physics out of these different colors. Where in the infrared you see the warm dust, in the X-ray you see the shock waves and the jets. And it's through putting all of these different pictures together that that we're able to understand all of the different science that's going on in in this recently interacting system of this active galactic nuclei yeah um now you sort of i mean do you know sort of what the capabilities are compared to chandra i mean i mean do they use one instrument for a certain kind of work and a different one for a different kind of work well so both of them have uh similar scattering um mirrors so so the way these types of telescopes work is in order to to collect photons you use grazing mirrors so it's not like a single mirror like you see in the visible instead you essentially have a cone of mirrors that scatter the x-rays down onto your detector with xmm newton they actually have two different telescopes side by side for for collecting the x-rays each they have their own instrument where you see the biggest difference between the two systems is, is Chandra does have greater sensitivity. They also have very different orbits, um, which allows them to take different types of observations. They're different systems. But if you were a scientist, right, like if you were a scientist and you were going to work on some part of X-ray radiation, you know, would you submit for time on both devices? And then if you got mm-hmm. one, you'd be fine with no, it? You no, you do use them for slightly different things. Right. So uh, just like um, there's times when you need that one degree field of view that you can get off of a Schmidt telescope that has a 30 inch mirror and you can do some great survey work. There's other times when you need that 10 meter mirror and a one minute field of view. So the two telescopes have different sensitivities. They see slightly different parts of the X-ray spectrum. Axum Newton's a little bit easier to get time on. Chandra's more competitive. It's a slightly more sensitive telescope or somewhat more uh, sensitive telescope. Um, They just have different purposes. 
Right. Okay. Okay. Uh, so now, I mean, do you know what the original lifespan was supposed to be for this telescope? I mean, like, as we said, we're, it's one of those just keeps going and going. It, it just keeps getting extended and extended and extended. It, it was, I want to say that they were originally planning to have it go only into the early 2000s. It's currently extended. They're in the process of reviewing it in 2012, but um, it's, it's looking like it's going to keep going uh, probably till 2015. They were wow. thinking that it probably has enough fuel on board um, and all, all of the stuff that you need to keep it pointing, keep it going. They think that the spacecraft has the ability to keep going potentially as far as 2018. Um, so this is one of those great things where you build a telescope planning for it to last for a few years that you have the budget for. But you engineer it to last as long as possible, and you keep using it to get science as long as possible. But this is different from some of the other uh, telescopes out there. Like I know with Spitzer, they you know they had only so much coolant, and they knew pretty much down to the day when they were going to run out of coolant for the cold operations, and then they moved to the to the warm operations, right? Well, so the nice thing about x-rays is because they're already high-energy photons, it's not like you really need to cool anything. Right, right. When, when you're looking in the infrared, when you're looking in these these wavelengths that correspond to nice, warm surface, uh, you have to worry about your nice, warm instrument generating the color of light that you're trying to detect from the outer parts of, of our solar system, of our galaxy, of our universe. Uh, so you have to cool your entire system down so it's not generating light that creates background noise in all of your images. Um, imagine if inside your camera were little lights that were shining on your camera detector at the same time that you're trying to take a picture of the outside world. Uh, with x-rays, you know, if the telescope is hot enough that it's generating its own x-rays, you probably don't want to be using it. Yeah, the temperature, the temperature of a telescope doesn't matter for catching bullets in it. Right, you know? right. It just... And so, so you don't have to worry about cooling at all. So, so these, these issues that, that affect Spitzer uh, don't affect X-ray telescopes. So it's strictly the, the types of problems of what well, we've seen with Hubble. Hubble periodically loses gyroscopes and it can't point as effectively. Right. Yeah. You have to worry about how long can the system keep pointing. Um, we've seen past missions. Fuse was one of them where, where NASA kept hacking new ways to keep the spacecraft pointed. Yeah, they and, figure and out, so it's quite amazing. They're like, oh, you know, we, we thought we needed three gyroscopes. We figured out how to yeah. do with two. And then, oh, no, we figured out how to do with one. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like really clever. So, so this mission seems to be going fine as, as long as they keep getting renewal to keep listening to it and keep steering it and operating it. It's, I just like I, I said at the beginning of the show, I love the fact that the number of refereed papers is greater than the number of revolutions around the planet. <laughs> right. And then um, you've talked about the lifetime. So is there a sort of potential successor out there? Do you know sort of, I mean... You know, either from NASA or from the uh, from the European Space Agency. I I think given the current budget climate yeah. around the planet, it's it's are there scientists who have plans for potential successors who, if budgets are released, can step in and suddenly have great things ready to go? Yes. Um, I I know there's a group of people working on instrumentation for X-rays at Harvard, for instance. That said. Um, there, there aren't any new, big, giant, awesome X-ray missions planned for the future to supplant XMM Newton and Chandra. 
what would they do if they did? I mean, I'm trying to think, would it just be a bigger, a bigger version of the instrument or? Well, so, so two, the two different problems that we have with x-rays are one, they're hard to detect. So being able to increase the sensitivity, see fainter and fainter x-rays, that's one direction to go in. The other is the suckers are hard to focus. So these these are the individual x-ray photons. And some of the things that they've been working very hard on in the past few years is how do you build detectors that have greater and greater um, resolution so that you can see, well, what are the details of the jets? What are the details of the shocks? So we have the potential moving into the future to both increase the resolution and increase the light gathering capability. And to basically see fainter, higher resolution objects out in the the not so distant uh, stars with jets, and in the very distant galaxies with jets. And what would be a sort of future objective that maybe astronomers are are hoping for? Because I know, like, like you remember when uh, I'm trying to remember, uh, was it Spitzer? Well, when Hubble went up, it it had the definitive goals of we want to figure out what the heck is up with these planetary nebula that have funky shapes. And and how fast is the universe expanding? And and, and the Hubble constant. Those, right. those were the two big things. In, in x-rays, we're constantly getting surprised at, at all the different things that, that we're finding. So we're discovering magnetic stars that give off x-rays when their magnetic fields uh, rearrange. We're discovering fast-moving pulsars, in some cases perhaps shot off during supernova explosions. We're, we're discovering one, one of my favorite more recent results was in the spring it was found that the supermassive black hole in our own own galaxy it periodically essentially burps x-rays and these x-rays have reflected off of ionized atoms and we can map the the location of that ionized gas by looking at the differences in in how we're seeing the light come back to us as it gets reflected from this this echo so just like you can in some ways map out a room from the way the sound echoes, we find that we're able to map out the cores of galaxies based on how the x-rays echo through the cores of galaxies. That would be really cool. And and it's not a will, it's it's an is. And our ability to do this will only increase as, as our technology increases in the future. Right, right. Very cool. Okay, well, so I guess we need more funding. Yes, always. More funding, please. Yeah. Always. All right. Well, cool. Well, thanks a lot, Pamela. That was great. And we will see you uh, next week. Sounds good. My pleasure. This has been Astronomy Cast, a weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos. Show notes and transcripts for every episode are available on our website. Check it out at astronomycast.com. You can send us any comments, questions, or feedback to info at astronomycast.com. We read every email. The show is a nonprofit educational resource provided by Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. We're supported through the kind donations of listeners like you. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. taxpayers. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend it to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Music is provided by Travis Searle. The show was edited by Preston Gibson. 
Astronomy Cast is produced at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville with generous support from Universe Today. 